Hello, you beautiful people. My name is Austin Adams, and welcome to the Adams Archive. Today's episode is going to absolutely blow your mind. I have been diving deep into this topic over the past several, several days, and I can tell you I have never been more concerned for the future of America as I am now. Now, this is not about trafficking. This is not about politicians. This is not about... This is about the American banking system, okay? Now, that may not sound very enticing to you, but once we get into this topic to the depths that we are going to today, you're going to realize what I'm talking about, okay? Now, what prompted this for me was looking into the Silicon Valley bank collapsing, okay? Now, that prompted me to figure out what the hell fractional banking is. Figuring out fractional banking led me to realize that that is no longer the concept that we operate off of. No matter how scary fractional banking itself is, what we have today is even worse. Now, that drove me down a rabbit hole to figure out how we got to a point where fractional banking was even possible, which led me to learn all about the Federal Reserve. To learn about the Federal Reserve... There was a book that was written, and we will go over some of the highlights, called The Creature from Jekyll Island. Okay, now that book, beautifully written, um, there's some really good, uh, really, really good uh, lectures online by uh, Edward Griffin, and I'm going to see if I can get him on the podcast. I messaged him today to see if uh, maybe he can come on here and explain these things a little bit better than I can. But he's very, very brilliant. You should go listen to these lectures. They'll be included in the Substack. All right, if you're not in the Substack already, go to austinadams.substack.com. You can sign up. You'll get all of the articles, all the videos, all of the ish that we are talking about here today. All right. So without further ado, well, maybe one ado. Subscribe, <laughs> leave a five-star review. All right. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Tell me what you learned about uh, fractional banking, which again, doesn't sound very enticing, but promise you after you figure out everything that I figured out, your mind's going to be blown. All right. So without further ado, let's jump into it. The Adams Archive. The very first subject of today's podcast is going to be on the collapse of SVB. Okay, now SVB is the Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank, obviously located in Silicon Valley, basically sent shockwaves through the entire tech industry. And that was right about a week ago, right? A few, not even a few days ago. All right, through Wall Street, through Washington, everybody was shocked by what happens. Regulators have since shut down the bank to prevent a crisis in the broader banking system just days after another bank, Signature Bank, was abruptly closed as well. 
Silicon Valley Bank, which provided banking services to nearly half of the country's venture capital-backed technology and life science companies, made this very the same mistake as many other banks. It invested most of its deposits in long-term debt like treasury bonds, promising steady, modest returns. However, this strategy proved short-sighted when the Federal Reserve, looking to combat rapid inflation, started raising interest rates, making these once-safe investments far less attractive. All right. Silicon Valley Bank was also uh, uniquely vulnerable due to its business being concentrated in the tech industry, which was experiencing a rapid decline in startup funding. As a result, its clients started to withdraw their money. And once some people started drawing their money, other people started withdrawing their money, causing what they call a bank run. All right. Now, a bank run. So you have some terminology behind this. A bank run is basically when everybody starts to go line up outside of the banks, asking banks to give them the very money that they worked so hard for. The very money that they sweat, bled, worked their asses off weekends over time to feed their children. Okay, and we'll learn about that fractional banking, which some of this has already alluded to already, which is terrifying, like I said. Okay, so now the collapse of Silicon Bank is the largest since the 2008 financial crisis, the very largest bank to do so since which again, is only going to get worse as people realize that our banking system is built on a house of cards. Just a little whistle in the wind will cause our entire financial system to collapse. All right, we're going to talk about today some things like what is money, right? Why does it even hold value, which is probably the most fundamental question that has one of the most concerning answers. Um, as you've noticed recently, I've been using the AI chatbot, ChatGPT, pretty consistently. Came out with their fourth generation of it today. Um, it's pretty incredible technology, but it helped me along the way doing some of these calculations to actually figure out what it would cause for the American financial system to collapse. And that's some of the things that we're going to discuss here today. I'll go through those calculations with you. All right, it highlights the dangers of fractional reserve banking. When banks invest most of their deposits, they create more money than they hold in reserves leading to a precarious situation where a loss of faith in the bank can trigger a run on deposits. In such cases, the bank makes gains privately, but losses are socially distributed. That's what you have to realize about this. When a bank is doing well, they profit ungodly amounts of money. When things aren't going well for a bank, you know who foots the bill? You and me. The American public foots the bill. When they get bailed out, by our government. So things are going great. They profit. You'll make a dollar. Well, maybe you make, you know, two cents off of every hundred dollars that you have in your bank account based on interest. But when things are going great for the banks, they're not coming to you to pay you out dividends, right? But when things are going horribly bad and the government decides to bail them out, you know who pays that bill? And we don't even really pay it. And that's what I've realized from learning all of this. We don't even really pay it. We pay it through inflation, we pay it through the fictitious, magical creation of money, which has no value unless we decide that it does. Again, which we'll talk about in a minute. So fractional reserve banking to me is theft. It is a entity taking your money and putting it in as many places as possible so that they can continue to make money. They can give out loans with it. They can do all of these things. But... The second you come ask for your money, well, you and maybe your neighbor and a few other people at the same time, they don't have it. 
because it's off in these fictitious little places that they're hoping to make interest based on the fact that you're never going to come ask them for it at the same time. Right before the Great Depression, the U.S. dollar was backed by gold. That ensured that the money in the economy was backed by something physical, something tangible. Right when something is backed by something, a commodity like gold or silver, right, or even Bitcoin. Right, if you understand how this works, right, the the way that gold is created, gold is a gold is a specific element that is created. And forgive me, I'm not a damn science teacher over here. Got a beer in my Yeti, so. <laughs> the way that gold is created is the earth puts together certain amounts of carbon and when you get the perfect alignment of these these elements right it creates what we know today as gold right not fool's gold not all these other renditions of this potential possibility but actual physical gold as we know it today is a specific type of gold okay now that gold is minted right the the earth had to have all of these situations happen simultaneously and in the proper way perfectly to cause gold to be created and to be in your hands the way that it can be today. Okay, that's what happens, right? The, the, the earth has a mathematical equation of circumstances and pressure and whatever the hell else it is. And then gold is physically created and minted by the earth. Okay, something like, think of it, if you know anything about cryptocurrency, think of it like Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin it has a computer that is working nonstop to create a bunch of algorithms and calculations to try to decrypt a or mine a Bitcoin, the same way you mine gold. And eventually, after so many algorithms, so many computers are working to do this, one unlocks a Bitcoin and that creates scarcity. There's only a certain amount of Bitcoins that are being created on a general basis. There's only a certain amount of gold that is being created by the earth at any given time. That scarcity gives it value, right? So during the Great Depression, <clears throat> our money was backed by gold. After the Depression, the U.S. abandoned the gold standard and became a fiat system, okay? Fiat currency is not backed by anything at all, no assets, no commodities, right? And the fact that Silicon Valley Bank had basically uninsured depositors highlights the need for money to be backed by something physical like gold, and that ensures that depositors' money is protected. It is being held physically somewhere to show that that piece of paper that you have is attached to a certain amount of, of physical minted developed by the earth gold or even Bitcoin, right? It has some sort of, of, of uh, built-in scarcity that drives value, right? There's not, there's not an unlimited amount that can be created at the whim of any American who wants to profit based off the central banking system, which again, we'll learn more about in a minute. We're going to learn a lot today. Um, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank underscores the need for tighter banking regulations, right? We've seen several, several things that have happened, right? Like um, some regulations that were rolled back in 2018 under Donald Trump, right? Some banking experts believe the Dodd-Frank financial regulatory package intended to prevent such collapses and could have stopped this bank from handling its interest rate risks um, had it not been rolled back, which is some opinions, but the bigger problem, the biggest issue here, when we talk about fractional banking, which again, I'll pull up here, I'll, I'll talk you through it. Let me just go through this article with you. The collapse of these banks, it says, has prompted a swift reevaluation of the Fed's interest rate increases. On Monday, smaller banks rushed to reassure customers that they were on firmer financial footing, but shares of U.S. regional banks plummeted. 
The KBW Bank Index, which tracks the performance of 24 major banks, fell 10%, erasing nearly $200 billion of value of the banks in the index. It says the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank highlights the dangers of fractional reserve banking and the need for money to be backed by something physical. The fallout of these collapses underscores the need for tighter banking regulations to prevent such collapses and ensure the stability of the financial system. Okay, let's talk about it. What is fractional banking? Okay, fractional banking was the cause of what happened with SVB, right? What is fractional banking? Fractional banking is the idea that if you deposit a hundred dollars into a bank, the bank can take $90 of that 100, hold on to the remaining 10, which was the standard prior to 2020. The standard prior to 2020 was that the banking system had to hold 10% of the overall value in reserves. Now that changed, but even with 10%, think of it this way. If you handed, gave the bank a hundred dollars, right? Let's say 10 people gave the bank a hundred dollars right? They gave out 900 of that $1,000 of the 10 people's $100, which leaves them with one $100 bill. The other 900 they gave away to other people in the hopes of making interest in the future. So when two people, just two people go to the bank at the same time and say, I want my $100, give me all of my $100 that I gave you. That is $200 that they're asking for one of those people is not getting any of their money, or at least both of them are getting half of it. They don't have it. They don't even have it for two people, let alone the full 10 people that gave them $100, right? If just two people went and asked the bank for this money back, they would not be able to do it, right? 20% in this case. Now, what we realize it is far, far worse than that in the real world scenario. What we realize excuse me, what we realize is that in 2020, it was changed from 10%. Just 10% of the money in your banks had to be held onto by the, by the reserves, by the bank. Just 10%. In 2020, during COVID, they changed that percentage to 0%. None of it did they have to hold on to. None of it in reserve, 0%, not 1%, not 2%, 0% of your money has to be held by the bank in reserves, 0%. That is astonishing. There is no federal regulations at all now that say that the bank has to hold any of your money for withdrawals, right? What they are dependent on is if everything collapses, then the FDIC, the Federal Something Insurance Commission, well, basically has insured each, each value of each customer up to $250,000, which again, we'll find out is a complete farce. What a terrible word. Farce is a terrible word. It's like, I don't even like to say it. It's like saying fart. Farce. I don't know. Anyways, farce is a complete farce. It's bullshit. There's nothing there for you to take in. So, so when two of those people in that scenario that I gave you go to the bank and ask for their money back, somebody's going to walk away with no money. So, so one person gets their hundred dollars out. The second person goes and asks for 10 of it, just 10 of it. Now that person realizes that the bank does not have their money. They start talking to their friends. You know who their friends are? The other eight people in the scenario who gave the bank hundred dollars. Now you have all other eight people, nine people in total going to the bank saying, I want my money back, but the bank has none of it. 
They don't have to hold on to any of it. And the scenario is actually far worse than that in today's world. After 2020 and that legislation changed. The scenario is now anybody goes to the bank and starts to ask them for that money back. They don't have to hold on to any of it. That, my friends, is fractional banking. And it scares the shit out of me. And it's not even fractional anymore. There's no fraction. The fraction's gone. It's fictitious banking. That's what it is. It's no longer even fractional, which was horrible. It's far, far worse. Okay. Do you want to know how fragile our entire banking system is here in the United States? Here is the most terrifying thing that you will hear today. Okay. ChatGPT concluded that if 2% of Americans, 2% of Americans decided to withdraw their money from the bank at the same time, it could have a high potential of causing a collapse of the entire banking system that as we know it today. The entire banking system as we know it today. Just 2%, two out of 100 people, two out of 100 people went to their bank right now. This concluded and calculated the entire banking system could collapse. So again, it's far worse than that scenario that I gave you. And let me walk you through how it got to that, okay? ChatGPT said, we can try to make a rough estimation based on some data points. Okay, now I had to do some finagling to give it actually give me this because it didn't want to give me this answer. It says, first, it's essential to understand that the reserve requirement being 0% means that banks are not required to hold a specific percentage of their deposits as reserved. However, it doesn't mean the banks hold no reserves at all right? They still maintain some reserves, doesn't give you an amount because it can't, to manage day-to-day transactions and withdrawals. Day-to-day, not week-to-week, not month-to-month, day-to-day. The amount of the reserves varies by bank. It depends on the bank's size, number of clients, and other factors. To estimate the percentage of people required to cause a nationwide banking collapse, we need to consider the amount of money held in deposits and the amount of reserves held by banks. According to the Federal Reserve, as of September 2021, the total amount of money in the deposits in the U.S. banks was around $17 trillion. Okay. Assuming that these banks still maintain some reserves, assuming that they maintain some reserves, it says, let's calculate based on 2% of their deposits are held as reserves. This would amount to approximately $342 billion in reserves. If depositors were to withdraw their money in such a way that bank reserves were insufficient to cover the withdrawals, it could potentially trigger a banking collapse, right? That's the other eight people, nine people going to the bank and saying, I want my money because the other the second person went there to ask for it and it wasn't there. To find the percentage of people who would need to withdraw their funds to cause a banking collapse, we can use the following formula. Reserves divided by deposits times 100 equals the percentage of people. Okay. So we take that $342 billion, right, of the 2%, divide that by the 17.1 trillion, multiply that by 100, it gives you 2%. It says, based on this rough estimation, if around 2% of people in the United States simultaneously withdrew their, their money from the banks, it could potentially cause a nationwide banking collapse. It says, however, this is a highly simplified calculation, does not take into account many factors, such as the variation in reserve levels among the banks, the distribution of deposits, and the possibility of banks borrowing money from other sources to cover withdrawals. Additionally, the Federal Reserve acts as a lender of last resort and can provide emergency funds to banks facing a liquidity crisis which could prevent a collapse, okay? Now, what it goes on to say is that in summary, it's difficult to provide a precise percentage of people required to cause a nationwide banking collapse due to 0% fractional reserve requirements. However, based on this rough estimation of 2% of people 
withdrew their funds, it could cause a banking crisis. Um, it says that rem to remember that the Federal Reserve could intervene to prevent a collapse. Oh, don't worry about anything. The Federal Reserve is here to save you. It's not going to collapse when the Federal Reserve is here. What is the government's got our back. Hmm. Is the Federal Reserve a part of the government? No, it is not. It's a mixture being overseen in some way, shape or form by Congress. But we even find out that that's not true. But it was and you can read all about this in the creature from Jekyll Island, but we're going to get into it now. Okay. The federal reserve has absolutely nothing was not founded by the government. You want to know who the, the federal reserve was founded by the federal reserve was founded by bankers, the very bankers that you know, the name of, and you can probably take a guess as to who people from the Rockefeller family, the Aldrich family, J.P. Morgan Chase, seven men secretly met on an island in Georgia, concealing their identities, changing their names. They met on a private train cart to discuss how they were going to essentially take over the world's banking systems, starting with the United States. These seven men's wealth Seven men's wealth equated to one-fourth of the total world's wealth at the time. And all they wanted to do was figure out how they could take over the other three-fourths. It's pretty simple. When you get seven guys in a room, why wouldn't you do that, right? So let's unmask the architects of the Federal Reserve and talk about why every single American should be outraged at this historical account. And here it is. As you go about your daily life, there's a creature lurking behind the scenes, pulling the strings of our economy. This seemingly innocuous entity is none other than the Federal Reserve. And its origin story is as chilling as any horror tale when you realize the truth. In the eye-opening book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, by Edward Griffin, it unveils the clandestine beginnings of the Fed and the dangers it poses to our society. The secret birth of the Federal Reserve in 1910. A group of influential bankers in 1910 and politicians gathered in secrecy on Jekyll Island in Georgia to hatch a plan that would forever change the course of American history. Their mission? To create a centralized banking system that would benefit their own, their own interests while consolidating power and control over the nation's finances. This furative meeting laid the groundwork for the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. Our entire structural financial system was built less than 111 years ago. An institution that now, now holds immense power and sway over our economy basically dictates all of it. The key architects of the Federal Reserve were no ordinary individuals. They were powerful cabal of bankers and politicians, including Paul Warburg, Nelson Aldrich, J.P. Morgan, among others. Their goal was to establish a banking cartel that would protect their interests while simultaneously controlling the country's monetary policy. By doing so, they could manipulate the economy to their advantage profiting from booms and busts 
while leaving ordinary Americans to bear the consequences. The Federal Reserve's very existence poses a threat to our society. Its power to create money out of thin air and manipulate interest rates allows it to control the value of our currency, often leading to inflation and devaluation. Moreover, the Fed's unelected the Fed's unelected officials operate with minimal transparency, making decisions that affect millions and millions of people without any public oversight whatsoever. Furthermore, the Federal Reserve's ability to bail out large financial institutions in times of crisis promotes moral hazard. Big banks take on excessive risks, knowing that the Federal Reserve will rescue them if things go south, which is exactly what we saw happen with SVB. This reckless, this reckless behavior can lead to financial crises with ordinary citizens left to foot the bill, which is exactly what I talked about earlier, right? When they can create money out of thin air, it's not out of thin air. It's out of future comfortability for the American people. It causes inflation. And that's where we're going to see the result when they created trillions of dollars during COVID so that they could pay people not to work so they could shut down the economy for their own agenda to cause you to get vaccinated so Pfizer could profit off of it. Now, the Federal Reserve, born from a secretive gathering of powerful elites, wields enormous power over our economy. Its actions can lead to inflation, devaluation, financial crises, all while operating with minimal transparency. It says, as Americans, we must be aware of the Fed's origins and inherent risk it poses to our society. We should demand greater transparency, oversight, dem and dem democratic control over this powerful institution. It's time for us to stand up and fight against the creature that has taken a hold of our economy before it's too late. And I personally believe that it might already be too late. Okay? It is so crazy to see how this came together and what, what this entire financial system is built on. Like I said, it's a house of cards. Okay, let's go ahead and let's watch a little bit of this clip. And this is by the author himself, Edward Griffin, um, who, again, I really hope I can get on the show because I would have a really, really interesting conversation with him. Here it is. Takes in in taxes. How can Congress spend more money than its income in taxes? Basically, what happens is the Congress goes down to the Treasury and asks for, let's say it's a billion dollars more that they need this day. And the Treasury official says, you guys got to be kidding. We don't have any money here. You spent it all long ago. Everything we've taken in taxes is long spent. And Congress says, well, we kind of figured that was the case, but we thought somebody might have dropped by and left some money. <laughs> they said, we know what we'll do. We'll borrow the rest of it. So they go down the street to the printing office. Now notice they're not going to print money. They're going to print certificates, nice big fancy certificates with borders on the corner and a, an eagle at the top and a seal at the bottom and it'll say United States Treasury bond or note or bill depending on the length of maturity. And it's so impressive it almost looks like money. But if you hold it up the light it really says I owe you. That's all they are. And so Congress takes it and it wants the public to step forward and loan them money in exchange for the IOUs. Sometimes that's called buying bonds. No, you're not buying anything. You're loaning money to the government and getting an IOU in return. And a lot of people in the private sector 
and institutions are anxious to loan money to the government. Why? Because they have heard that it's the best investment you can possibly make, the most secure investment, because it is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. <laughs> and that, people aren't quite sure what that means, but it sure sounds good. And so they lend the money. Well, just in, in case there's anyone here in doubt as to what that means, I'd like to explain it to you. The full faith and credit of the United States government means that the federal government solemnly promises to pay you back your money plus interest. If it has to take everything you've got in the form of taxes to do it, it will do it. <laughs> it's a promise to tax you. And people don't think this thing through. They think, oh, it's wonderful. It's a, it's a you know, wonderful investment, and I'm going to get some of my money back. Anyway, that's a little side issue. The government is able to borrow a tremendous amount of money and therefore spend more than it takes in in taxes through this process. But never enough. They always need more than that. Not to worry, they say. They walk further down the street to the Federal Reserve Building. Now the Fed has been waiting for them. That's one of the reasons it was created. They walk in there and the Federal Reserve officer opens up his desk drawer, pulls out a big checkbook, and he writes a check to the United States Treasury for one billion dollars and hands it to them. Now we need to stop and ask a question. Where did they get that money? That billion dollars, that's a lot of money. Who put the money in that, that, into that account for the Federal Reserve so they could give it to Congress or to the Treasury? And the answer is, there is no money there. There's absolutely zero. There's just a checkbook. Well, if you and I were to do that, we would go to jail. <coughs> but they can do it because Congress wants them to do it. This, in fact, is the payoff. This is the benefit to the government for being in the partnership. The government can go to the Federal Reserve and obtain instant amounts of any amount of money they want without having to confront the taxpayer and say, we're going to raise your taxes for this money directly. It would be very unpopular if Congress had to go to the public and say, you know, we have a lot of money we want to take from you folks, and it's going to cost you $3,000 per family more than it did last year. You know how long they'd last in office. So they like this mandrake mechanism very well. The public doesn't know that it's costing them anything. It's just how it works somehow. So this money, this billion dollars, springs into being precisely at the instant that the Federal Reserve officer signs the check and gives it to the government. Now let's see where the banking cartel benefits from this partnership. So there is your answer about where our money comes from. It comes from nowhere. Nowhere. It is fictitiously created by the Federal Reserve. There is no backing whatsoever. There is no scarcity or commodity. You may know this, but you may not have heard it in this way. The American dollar is an illusion that only continues to thrive as long as everybody believes in it. 
What happens to the dollar once ever the illusion crumbles, once people lose faith in it and they go to the banks and start asking for their money back? It doesn't exist. Right? More checks need to be written, which just kicks the can down the road. And when you kick the can down the road, right, that causes inflation, that devalues our dollar, right? So there's a little bit about where the money comes from. It comes from nowhere. These seven bankers gave themselves the power to be financial gods with the ability to create money out of thin air and then foot the, back, the bill back to us, the American citizens. Okay, now you must say, there must be some oversight, right? This is a, it has the word federal in it. No way. They could just do whatever they want. Right now, the way that they lay it out and the way the structure was built, and there's been hundreds of amendments since this happened in 1913, which make it far, far worse than it was even originally written to do. But there's 12 regional banks. Now, these banks are not banks like you and I have access to, right? They're corporate banks. They're governmental banking structures, right? So they say that they, they push off this power, and there's 12 regional banks that make up the the banks that that hold the power over uh, hold the power over the Federal Reserve. But what you find out is that's not the case either. There's loopholes built into the laws that allow these federal banks, these 12 banks based on districts that are drawn up arbitrarily, that only have power to the extent that the Federal Reserve allows them to have power by this committee that oversees everything. Right, This committee that oversees everything has the power to veto any and all things. The only thing that the regional banks actually have any power over is the interest rates for their specific districts. But you even find out that these regional banks can be vetoed in their own percentages of interest rates for their own districts by this overhead and oversight committee. So it is not immune to any type of corruption as some people would have you believe. It's basically built off of corruption, right? They get to create money however they want, whenever they want, for whatever reason they want, as we found out with Ukraine. The Federal Reserve is just a, like he said, a cartel built by the banks to become a monopoly over the financial system, over our government. The banks are not owned by the government. The government is owned by the banks, and the more that you realize, the more that you read up on our financial systems, the more you learn about it, the more that becomes the case. Because the banks own the companies, right? You look at BlackRock, you look at Vanguard, those different conglomerations of, of financial wealth funds own every single major corporation. Those corporations lobby the government and get politicians put into positions so they can continue to further the profitability of the entities in which the corporations want, right? The, the corporations are, right? The only, the only legislation that is being passed is stuff that's profitable for these corporations. And the only things that are profitable for the corporations are what's profitable for companies like BlackRock, BlackRock or entities like BlackRock, not even companies, and entities like Vanguard. And they have worldwide reach. Those are the banking cartels, right? Everybody wants to pull back the curtain. That's the World Economic Forum elites, right? 
So then you can start to ask yourself, well, why? Why would they want to do these things, right? We'll get to that in just a second. But let's ask ourselves a more simple question. Why does money have any value if it is not backed by something of scarcity? If it's not the need to be minted by the earth, if there's no actual true scarcity surrounding it, why does it hold any value at all? The only reason that money has any value whatsoever is because it's an agreed upon illusion that all of us buy into. When the illusion fades, so does our entire societal financial foundation. The second Americans decide to go to the bank and ask for their money back, the second that everybody tries to go and switch over to gold, everything crumbles. 2% of people, that's all it takes. So how can it represent value if there's no value to it other than an agreed upon illusion? And this is a question that I posed to ChatGPT. And it says, money represents value because people in society collectively agree to accept it as a medium of exchange for goods and services, right? Yeah, sounds, sounds all right. This agreement is based on trust in the shared belief that others will accept the currency. Okay, that's fair. It says that while it may seem like an illusion, this trust in societal consensus gives money its value and makes it a functional tool in the economy. Modern fiat currencies like the US dollar and the euro are not backed by physical commodities like gold or silver. Instead, their value comes from the faith people have in the stability of the issuing government and the central bank's ability to manage the money supply reasonably. Now, when you understand that that dollar in your hand only has value to the extent that you have faith in the government, and not even faith in the government, but faith in the central bank, and not even faith in the central bank, faith in the very people that you and I have pulled back the curtain to over the last two years and realized they have absolutely none of our best interest in mind. This goes on to say that in a functioning economy, trust in the currency is maintained through the central bank's management of inflation and interest rates, ensuring the money retains its purchasing power and remains a stable store of value. Additionally, legal tender laws and regulations further reinforce the acceptance of a currency as a value medium of exchange. In summary, while the value of money may seem like an illusion, it's the trust and shared belief in its value that allow it to function as a medium for exchange, ultimately enabling trade and the commerce within a society. Okay, now, now that we realize that our entire currency is just an illusion based off of our faith in our governmental structure and not even that, but the central bank, here's the next question that you can ask yourself and, and, and something that you will run into, right? They'll tell you that, oh, well, it's backed by the FDIC, right? It's backed by the FDIC. That's a federal something insurance commission. Right, And the FDIC insures deposits up to $250,000 per depositor per insured bank for each account ownership category. Okay, That's what people will tell you. That could never happen. It's not going to collapse. It's insured. Right, And what it means by it's insured is all of the banks pay a premium on a monthly or however freaking they do it. I don't know what their you know, quarterly, yearly, annual, uh, decade-wise, who knows? But they pay a premium to basically say that, oh, if our money runs out, they'll 
pay back the customers, right? If, if all else fails in our fractional banking system, which now holds 0% reserves and people actually ask us for it, you guys got our back, right? And that's what people will tell you. That's what they want you to believe is the FDIC has your back, right? The Federal Deposit Insurance Fund, okay? Now, each of those is $250,000 per deposit per account, which I found to be interesting. Okay, maybe that, that gives me a little peace of mind, right? To know that there's a, a, a governmental insurance behind my money. That's a beautiful sound, isn't it? Did you hear that? That is the sound of a Founders Four Giants Imperial IPA. All right, so it's backed... It's backed by the by the insurance company, right? It can't be fake, right? It can't be fictitious. It's not an illusion. They got our back. There's a contract that says they're going to give us money. $250,000. Most people don't have that. I don't, you don't have that. I don't have that. Maybe, right? So it says, while it's difficult. So, so, so here's what I asked it, right? So, so. There's $250,000 insured per account. So there, there must be a, a number out there for how much of these premiums has been gathered that can be distributed at any given time, right? That's how it works. So as of September 30th, 2021, the FDIC's DIF balance was approximately $122 billion. That's a lot of money, right? That's a good amount of money, $122 billion. But when you realize that the total amount of estimated insured deposits was about 9.1 trillion, things start to crumble a little bit, which is, again, some calculations I did with ChatGPT. So there's 331 million American citizens, right? There's 122 billion in its DIF balance for the FDIC. And the total amount of estimated insured deposits was $9.1 trillion. The, the, the math doesn't seem to add up there. So I asked it. What percentage of Americans would be insured by the FDIC before the money ran out? Seems like a fair question. It should be 100%, right? The FDIC has several tools, it says, and strategies at its disposal to handle bank failures and protect insured depositors. In the event of a large-scale banking crisis, it's unlikely that all insured deposits will be simultaneously at risk. The FDIC can also access additional resources. Okay? Now, it says that there's $331 million because it wouldn't answer that for me originally. It said, you know, including the scale of the banking crisis, the size of individual deposits, and the extent of support from the U.S. government. However, the FDIC's primary goal is to maintain stability and public confidence. So I asked it, based on 331 million people, and $122 billion, how much is allotted per citizen for the FDIC? It answered, to calculate the average amount allotted per citizen based on the FDIC's deposit insurance fund, balance of $122.2 billion, in the population of $331 million, you can divide the DIF balance by the population. Take $122 billion, divide that by $331 million, you get the most disturbing statistic that you're going to hear today, or figure that you're going to hear today, $369 per American citizen. If everything crumbles, the insurance that they want you to believe has your back will pay out $369.18. Wow. That'll buy you a nice steak dinner, huh? Well, everything's crumbling beyond belief. 
while the government buildings are on fire, while the banks are collapsing, you're going to get a payout of the FDIC if everybody goes to the bank to pull the deposits. Now, there's some caveats to that. Obviously, not every citizen is going to run to the bank. Not every citizen has $369. Some have far more than that, too. Some of those are children, right? Take that into account. But $369 per citizen is insured. Not exactly the 250000 that they want you to believe, is it? says that it's important to note that this calculation doesn't accurately represent how the FDIC insurance works. The FDIC insures deposits up to 250000 per deposit per insured bank for each account ownership category, and not every citizen has the same amount of deposits. Also, the FDIC's primary function is to insure depositors and not to distribute the funds equally among the entire population. The calculation above is just a simple average and does not reflect the actual distribution of insured deposits or the specific coverage for individual deposits. So, now that I've readily terrified you, what do you do about it, right? What can you do, right? Is it, is it Bitcoin? Is it gold, right? And, and we talk about things that are minted and, and have a scarcity to it, like a, a, an actual built-in scarcity, not under the control of human beings who want to profit off of your demise, right? But what do you do about it? Well, I would say the first thing is definitely look into getting some, if you have a large amount of cash in a, a freaking bank account, start to question whether or not you believe enough in the American financial system and the central banking system to continue to hold it there and, and bank on the idea that 2% of Americans aren't going to go to the bank and ask for their money back at any given time, right? Or is this 0% fractional banking intentional? Right? Why would why would the Federal Reserve ever want to tank the American USD? Right? Why would they ever want to do that? They're in charge of it. Well, I think we need to go back and look at why they started the Federal Reserve to begin with. These men who owned one fourth of the world's wealth, between seven of them, didn't do it for financial gains. Right? That's I mean, numbers feel nice to them, I'm sure. It's just a little fun little game. But it's not about that, right? It's about power, right? It's about power. You can go be lake, uh, uh, you can go be freaking courtside at the Lakers. You know, you can do all the fun things, go in a high, own your own high rise building, right? Who, why would they care at that point if they have that much money? Okay. Now, I really enjoyed this rant um, by Mr. Griffin. And uh, let's let's let him take away the microphone here. Um, I'll interject a few times, but I, I do think there's so much value in this the the way that he ended his speech here that I might let it, let it run for a little bit. Um, so let's go ahead and see what he had to say about it. Compared to seventy thousand dollars for labor and materials. In other words, as Edison said, two and a half times more will be paid to the banks who did nothing than for those who provided all the labor and all the materials. And you may say, well, yeah, that's true, but don't forget the time value of money. Reasonable interest is rational. People need to be compensated for the sacrifice of their money over 30 years, that's a long period of time. <coughs> Wait a minute. Not this money, ladies and gentlemen. 
Nobody earned this money. Nobody saved this money. Nobody sacrificed anything for this money. This money was created out of nothing. And I suggest that $172,741 interest on nothing is excessive. <laughs> He's talking about mortgages. I think we need to focus on this issue. We need a new definition of the word usury. Any interest on any loan of fiat money, meaning money created out of nothing. Now this example of $172,741 unearned interest on a $100,000 home is like a grain of sand in the Sahara. Look around the desert. All of the other homes of America, all the factories, all the machinery in the factories, all of the high-rise buildings, the the hotels, all the airplanes, the automobiles, the farm equipment, the farm structures, everything that we have. You were looking at a similar relationship here. This is staggering to consider the amount of money that is in this huge wide river of wealth flowing into the banking cartel because the money was created out of nothing. It's such a wide river of wealth, you can't even think across it in your mind. It's perpetually moving into the banking cartel. This is a dead short across the productive capacity of America. This is money that should be going to the people who produce and who create instead of being siphoned off through a scam. Think of what our standard of living could be if it weren't for this dead short across our economy. Well, where is this money going, this river? Where is it flowing? You get the mental picture that maybe it's going into a, a lake somewhere or a, behind a dam. All this money is rising, accumulating. People are getting richer and richer and richer. No, not so. It's not how it works. They're spending the money. <coughs> what are they spending it for? Well, they're not spending it for more yachts and more, uh, more mansions. That's not it. I mean, they got rid of the mansions back on Jekyll Island. They got bored with those things. Once a person has all the money that they can possibly use for the material pleasures of life, what is left? Sure, power. Absolutely. They are spending this money for power, ladies and gentlemen, to acquire power over you and me and our children. They're literally buying up the world with it. But I don't mean they're buying up the real estate or the hardware. They're buying up control over people. Technically, in sociological terms, they're buying control over the power centers, which means those groups and institutions through which people live and work and follow leadership and accept information. People are always associated in groups, and they work in groups, they move in groups. And these groups have heads of them, leaders. And this money has been going for many years to acquire influence, if not control, over the leaders of these power centers in society. So they can therefore indirectly influence and control you and me. 
Specifically, that means they had been spending this river of wealth very freely to buy control over politicians, political parties, television networks, cable networks, newspapers, magazines, publishers, wire services, motion picture studios, universities, labor unions, church organizations, trade associations, labor unions, tax-exempt foundations, multinational corporations, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, you name it. Make your own list. I guarantee you if you have a large influential organization which influences people, you will find that this river of wealth has been flowing partly into a, an attempt to acquire control over the leadership of these institutions and organizations. Ooh, man. Right? That is wild. That very river that he's discussing are these wealth management conglomerations like BlackRock, like Vanguard, right? That are buying up all the real estate, that are buying up all the farms, all the agriculture, the school systems, the books that they put in the school systems, the Netflix organizations and the Disney pluses of the world, the news media, CNN, Fox News, all of it. All of it is intertwined, and it comes back to the same river of wealth that is built off of the Federal Reserve System. It is built off of the fictitious printing, and not even printing, the fictitious creation of monetary value that has no value, that is only has value because we believe in BlackRock and Vanguard, because we believe in the central banking system, because we believe that our government has our best interest in mind. Or at least we did. So when people talk about a financial collapse, it's not a, it's not a collapse of our financial systems. It's a collapse of belief. Belief in our government. Belief in our banking systems. Belief in the very companies that you and I have pulled back the curtains on and realized have nothing but malice against the American people. Want nothing but control over you. Want nothing but to influence your mind and, and, and insert venom into the veins of every child. To make them think that they should get castrated. And believe that they're a girl when they're a boy. That want you to get an abortion instead of having a baby. That want to institute the, the, the mass abortions of, of minority cultures. right? All, all of these things. The Boy Scouts, the... the, the like and and again i'm not i'm not against religion i i'm against massive organized religious organizations which is what he's talking about here it's like 18 of the 20 top facebook pages for christian uh facebook pages was ran by russian troll farms and like who owns those russian troll farms the very you th if you think the the reach and power and control of companies like blackrock and vanguard end in the United States and is only held by people within the United States, you're sadly mistaken. That venom has seeped into the culture, seeped into the entertainment, the news media organizations, the school systems, the books that you and I read. Everything. Everything and everywhere. And that, my friends, is why they wanted this to begin with. 1913 is what set this all off at Jekyll Island, where the Federal Reserve was made 
And you and I, the American culture, American society, the banking systems, currency, hard work, right? Consumerism, capitalism turned into corporatism, which has really turned into like, I don't even know the word for it, but it's not even corporatism now that I realize this. It's like just owned by seven fucking people, seven families that came together that created this. And then you want to talk about where those seven families came from and where their wealths come from. And that gets even weirder, right? The Royal Bloodline families, right? The Rockefellers, the Aldrichs, JP Morgan Chases, dating back all the way to Egyptian times and Roman empires. You think all that wealth just went away? No, it trickled down through family bloodlines for a very long time. That's a conversation for another day. But let's keep listening here. We've got a few minutes left. Especially those which are offered as opposition. Especially those which supposedly are to stop this whole process from happening. No. This has not only been going on in America, but this has been going on in every nation of the world, pretty much in the industrialized nations as it has gone on here. But I'd like to call your attention to what's been happening in the so-called third world or the underdeveloped nations. This process is now complete. It's not going on. It's finished. They literally have bought those nations. Have you ever wondered what's going on there with the IMF World Bank? Every once in a while on the back page of the newspaper you read that Congress once again authorized another hundred billion dollars or so to go to the World Bank. And then it explains very carefully that this money is being used for humanitarian reasons. It's being used to uplift the standard of living of these poor people. That is an appearance of the fourth kind if you ever saw one. It's not being used for that at all. If it is, they're not doing a very good job because after all these years, you cannot point to one of those countries which has had its standard of living raised one iota by this vast expenditure of money because it was never designed to do that. The money does not go to the people. It does not go to the industries or the businesses of those countries where it might have a chance of raising the standard of living. It goes to the politicians, doesn't it? It goes to the governments of those countries and it is used specifically to to perfect and strengthen the control mechanisms over their people. Usually this starts out, uh, starts out as an inefficient dictatorship, but by the time they get the UN money, it ends up as an efficient dictatorship. They have a better organized and equipped army. They have a better paid bureaucracy, more people in the bureaucracy. They have more ways of controlling their subjects. They have food chains that they can offer to their friends and deny it to their enemies. This money is used to build totalitarian systems in every country that you want to point to and analyze. You see, these people, these leaders of these countries, for the most part, couldn't care less about the standard of living of their subjects as long as they live well. They live in their mansions, have their yachts, their jet air aircraft, and they go to New York and live in the Waldorf Astoria while they attend United Nations meetings. They're very happy with that. They have no ideology. Communism, socialism, fascism, capitalism, what difference does it make? Where's the money? Mm -hmm. 
That's it with these people. We know how welfare families in this country can be second, third generation families and there's no hope at all of getting them off the dole because they can't imagine any other way of life. This happens at the international stage too. We're dealing with countries now that are second, third, in some cases fourth generation welfare governments. They don't know how to survive unless that money comes free through the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank means from us. There's no way in the world they're going to break free from that. These countries, ladies and gentlemen, have already been purchased lock, stock and barrel in this fashion and they are now in place in the new world order. And they're simply waiting for us to show up. And that's the other side of the coin because not only does this transfer of wealth to these countries from us not raise their standard of living but it does in fact help to lower ours. And this too is part of the plan. A strong nation is not a candidate for surrendering its sovereignty. But if a nation can be brought to its knees, if it is hungry, desperate, if it has chaos on its street, in its streets, if it has political turmoil, then the people in that nation will much more likely accept any solution that's offered to them by their government or by a world government. If there's anarchy in the streets, as we saw in Watts, in Los Angeles, people were joyous when the soldiers showed up. They were joyous because this now was an end to anarchy. It was a dress rehearsal. They won't care whether the helmets on these people are blue or brown. If it says UN on the side, they won't, that won't make any difference. They'll say, thank God for the UN finally brought and restored peace to our streets. And if people are hungry and they're out of work and they they don't know what to do in the economy, they'll be so thankful for a UN monetary unit which has purchasing power a little bit. Thank God for this UN money because the old American dollars are kaput. Don't know what to do with it. This is the plan, ladies and gentlemen, to weaken America. And so that's the process. And I'm mentioning this because I want to emphasize to you that what is going on here is, has nothing at all to do with wealth the name of the game now is power. And that, my friends, is your lesson on the American financial system. It is all about power. And the next step here, to me, and from where I'm sitting and what I'm seeing across the entire country and the entire world, is the implementation of a financial system that is based off of a social credit score because that is the ultimate power. This is a digital currency that has no paper fiat currency at all because when you implement that, they can make more money. They can make money off of every transaction, right? They can track everything that you do and they can stop you from dissenting, from speaking out against these things because then you can't buy the right foods for your family. You can't buy clothes for yourself. You can't buy diapers for your children. You can't get an education. You can't put gas in your car. It all comes down to power. So as I've said before, do what you need to do, but protect yourself and protect your family. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something today. 
leave a five-star review, subscribe, head over to the Substack, austinadams.substack.com. I love you. Have a great day.